Well, good morning, church. Good to see everyone. My name is Hunter Hambrick. I oversee our community groups here at Providence, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning, and super, super excited to do that. Um, if you've never been a part of a community group or if you're interested in joining one, I'd love to chat with you a little bit after service and tell you a little bit more about what is going on here at Providence. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Isaiah 58. Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bibles or your Bible reading plan on your iPhone, a little bit to the right, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. We just wrapped up a three-week-long series called the Redemptive Edge Summit, and we got to hear from some pretty incredible speakers. Uh, first off, Show Baraka, Charletta Evans, and then Patty Pell last week, and it was absolutely incredible. I'm super excited about next year's summit already and hope that you are blessed tremendously by that series. And the message I have to share today is really an extension of a message that Patty preached last week called The Beauty of Biblical Justice. So you could call this part two to Patty's message, and it's also kind of an extension of a message that Juan preached at the end of our Covenant Community series back in March, um, all about this idea of justice. I highly encourage you to go online, check out those messages if you've not heard them already. For the next few weeks or so, we are going to do some standalone messages and hear from various voices in our congregation. So I get the privilege of kicking that off, this series, if you will, by talking about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the topic of fasting. If you're taking notes today, and I hope that you are, the title of my message is, Whatever Happened to Holiness? Whatever Happened to Holiness? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is living and active, powerful than any two-edged sword. We thank you, God, for the redemptive work that you're doing, uh, not just here in the city of Denver, but really universally ar around the globe. We thank you for your presence and your power, God, in places like South Africa and Belarus, Uruguay, Libya, Mozambique, Singapore, and even the Ukraine. We thank you, God, for what you're doing locally in so many churches in our city, Summit Church, Denver Christian Bible Church, Denver Prez, Wellspring Anglican, Lighthouse Church, Deep Well, and Shorter AME in our very own parking lot, God. We are so grateful for the promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray your blessing over this local body of believers, our elders, our deacons, our community uh, members, our covenant partners, God. We pray that as we hear your word this morning, we would have a genuine encounter with your spirit. Our hearts are open. Our minds are alert. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. I'm a Pentecostal, so I'm going to need some amens and some, all right now, brother, a little call and response this morning if we're going to make it through the next half hour. That's my CG. Uh, being Pentecostal, I grew up in a church tradition where it was more or less customary for us to kick off the new year with 21 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, we refer to December and the holidays as our time of feasting and believing. But as soon as the new year rolled around, we were abstaining from food, consecrating our hearts, our minds, and our bodies as we anticipated what God might do in the new year. 
So in January of 2010, at the ripe age of 15, I fasted for the very first time in my life. I was an acne-faced, socially awkward, still am socially awkward, on fire for the Lord, young person, and because I felt a desperate need for God to move in my city and in my school, I fasted for three days straight. Which, yeah, pretty impressive for a 15-year-old. Uh, but uh, in hindsight, I realized it was a mistake because if you've never fasted before, three days in a row, that's, uh, that's quite a lot. No food, no sweets, no soda, just water. It was painful, but it was equally powerful. For the first time in my life, I felt clearly in my inner being the voice of God in fresh ways. I felt greater sensitivity towards sin and contempt for the things that grieve the heart of God. I felt renewed hunger for the word of God as my daily bread, the living and active source of life. And ultimately, I felt increased passion toward God and his spirit during intimate times of prayer and worship. Over the course of high school, college, and into early adulthood, three days turned to five, five turned to seven, seven turned to ten, and fasting had become a lifestyle for me. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I wasn't uh, always faithful to my practice of fasting. I remember one particularly difficult stretch of fasting in January of 2017. I had just graduated college and wanted to consecrate my life and ministry to God in total devotion. So I chose uh, pretty ambitiously to abstain from all food for 21 days, only liquids, now, just to paint a picture of my life situation for you at the time, uh, Kara, my now wife, and I had just begun a long-distance dating relationship. I had just moved back home to my parents' house in Tennessee. I had only the vaguest promise of a job from my church with no real job description, compensation, HR training, or even a start date to show for it. And the first night of that particular fast, I was driving home in the pouring rain, going around a bend in the country roads with no lights, and I hit a deer head-on at 55 miles an hour, and uh, my car was totally totaled, swerved off into the ditch, and was almost hit by another driver. So needless to say, I was pretty disoriented during this period of time. I remember feeling particularly depressed one evening. I came home from church, and found sitting, lo and behold, on the kitchen counter, my arch nemesis, the Snickers bar. It had been placed there either by my mother, who was concerned about my insulin levels, or by El Diablo himself. I'm not sure. Uh, but in that moment, I had never seen something so intoxicating in my entire life. I quickly scanned the kitchen to make sure no one was watching, and I held up that nuggety manna from heaven looked it into its eyes, sniffed its chocolate aromatic flavor, and I'm not proud of what I did next, but I daintily undressed the wrapper around the Snickers bar, and I licked it. <laughs> With all of the lack of self-discipline of a recently retired Olympian, immediately felt the full conviction of the Holy Ghost, spit it into the trash can, and went upstairs and repented like the man of God I am. And... Uh, it was in that moment that I knew fasting is not just a physical, but it's a spiritual battle. Uh, fasting is not for the faint of heart. Your connection to fasting may not be quite as dramatic as that, but many of you have abstained for food for long periods of time. Pastor Ray did a 40-day fast, uh, he was telling me just this week. Pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, at the same time, 
I recognize that the topic of fasting um, can be a complex one for many of us. Uh, some, for some of us, our relationship with food is a rather complicated one. Uh, you may have an earnest desire to abstain from food for the sake of holiness, uh, but the journey to fasting may be a more roundabout one for you. Uh, my wife and I would love to talk with you afterwards if that's the case for you. Uh, even in popular culture today, though, fasting is more fashionable than ever. Intermittent fasting is on the rise. There are countless articles and podcasts and books and videos that are dedicated to this very topic. Now, historically, Jewish people have fasted during holy days like Yom Kippur. Christians have fasted during Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, to prepare our hearts for Christ's death burial, and resurrection. And Muslims fast from sunup to sundown during Ramadan. In fact, recently converted Muslim and professional basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie Irving, caught social media by storm when he was seen eating a fruit cup during halftime of a professional NBA game because it was Ramadan and the sun had officially set, and so Kyrie is enjoying himself a fruit cup. Youthful Pentecostal devotion to the Lord, dietary eating plans, and the religious rituals of basketball stars are all well and good and have their place, to be sure. But when we approach Isaiah 58, this is not the kind of fasting that Yahweh has in mind. Isaiah 58 is near the end of the book of Isaiah, and it's one of the most painfully potent but also moving works of poetry ever written, and it contains three scenes or movements that I'd love to walk with you through today. So if you have Isaiah 58, let's look down at these three movements, the people's posturing, the Lord's pronouncement, and the prophet's promise. The people's posturing, the Lord's pronouncement, and the prophet's promise. First off, the people's posturing. It says this in verses one through three. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if, everybody say as if, they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. The call for Isaiah to cry aloud and lift his voice like a trumpet is a call to raise the shofar. Uh, the shofar was not so much a musical instrument as a literal ram's horn. It was often used as a battle horn to gain community-wide attention on the day of a battle, a war, or a cultic religious ceremony. Uh, the alarm raised by Yahweh implies that there are other voices vying for Israel's attention at this time. The message is clear. Wake up, pay attention, listen to what God has to say. And this people needs to pay attention because rebellion is in their blood. Do you see the title that they're given? The house of Jacob. This epithet calls back to mind the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac who deceived his father in order to betray his brother so that he might inherit the promise of the blessing. Fast forward almost a thousand years later and Israel is doing the exact same thing. Jacob's namesake is taking sacred means of relationship, fasting, and using it to profane and exploit 
the vulnerable through exploitation. The NIV translate verse 2 best by saying, uh, these people, they seem eager to know my ways. They give the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. God desires that these people would do justice and mercy and righteousness, that justice would roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty, never-failing stream. These people are posturing themselves as if they wanted righteousness and justice, but in reality, they have pimped out righteousness and justice for the cheap facade of virtue signaling and performative religion. They've traded sacrificial, immediate, and involved relationship for impersonal, indirect means of religious behavior. They could work for righteousness and justice, but instead they're too busy wearing be a good person t-shirts and posting black squares on Instagram for all to see. All such religion is not just performative, it's also manipulative. Israel has imbibed what I like to call the chance the rapper theology. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. Come on, Yahweh. We danced, we shouted, we worshiped, we fasted, we attended the Christian conference, we voted for the Christian candidate, we married the Christian spouse, we did this. How come you won't do that? This is quid pro quo spirituality, and it is something that all of us, myself included, are guilty of. How often do we approach God for what he can do for us rather than who he is to us? And God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion, is finally fed up. He's had enough. Day after day, they ask and they seek and they knock. But God has grown nauseated, sick to his stomach, that a righteous instrument for relationship, fasting, it's a good thing has been turned into a weapon of oppression for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. That is, these people are seeking God for righteous judgments or legal decrees directed against others so that they might benefit. But were Yahweh to grant them their request, the irony is they would not like his judgment because his judgment would actually result in condemnation against them. In the back half of verses 3 through 5, we see just this. It tells us about the Lord's pronouncement. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 3 says, you seek your own pleasure or pursue your own business. Some translations say you do as you please in verse 3. Uh, the verb for uh, seek your own pleasure or delight in Hebrew is hafetz. It's a play on words with the same word used back in verse 2. Uh, translation, these people seem to delight in my principles, but really they are more concerned about their own prophets. Their delight isn't in the capital G God of the universe, but in their lowercase g gods of mammon, power, and material success. It's difficult to reconstruct the historical situation with any level of certainty. 
But it seems clear that some of God's people were oppressing and exploiting others of God's own people on Sabbath when they should have been resting. So not only is this a complete and total failure of ritual, it's a failure of rest and a failure of relationship. Freed Israelites should not be behaving like Egyptians. These freed people should not be acting like slave masters, driving their own people into the ground until their backs are bent and their fingers are whittled to the bone. What is God's response to such injustice? Hey, keep shouting, hoop and holler all that you want, but I can't hear your worship over the cries of the oppressed. I can't hear your voice of those who have been victimized crying out to me from the ground. Could not the same charge be leveled against the American church today? Many of us uh, more liberally minded Christian white people like myself are invested in virtue signaling their allyship with people of color online more than they are actually involving themselves in the tangible needs of the poor in their communities. On the other hand, many conservative Christians, like some of my closest friends and family members, are busy quarreling and fighting and striking with the fists their opponents online, saying things like, more black people killed black people in Buffalo, New York, than that white shooter did in one day. Instead of mourning, we bicker. Instead of freeing, we oppress. Instead of fighting for the rights of victims, we fight for our rights to bear arms. All the while, the blood of innocent victims, such as church mother Ruth Whitfield at age 86, are gunned down, and countless others are crying out to heaven. Isaiah is saying to Israel and to us today, when we can't see any connection between the mistreatment of the poor and the lowly and our own personalized, privatized religion, that incongruence is all that God can see. Dante Stewart, a young, up-and-coming black theologian from Atlanta, says, the last few years did not ruin Christianity. It just exposed a long history that many Christian traditions are more committed to power than they are to people. It showed that at the heart of their faith was not love and liberation, but insecurity and fear. Help us, Lord. Indicting words to be sure. And I have to ask, is there hope? for situations as hopeless as these, both then and now. Verses 6 through 9 offer us a solution. We see the people's posturing, we see the Lord's pronouncement, and we see the prophet's promise in verses 6 through 9. When we compare verses 6 to verse 4, we see that the solution to the problem is actually the same as the cause of the problem. That is, you see in verse 4, it says you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the fist. But in verse 6, it says you need to loose the bonds to undo the straps to let the oppressed go free. Said simpler, you want to help the poor, look at your hands. (laughs) The very tools that once led to fighting and quarreling and oppression should also be the exact same tools that result in liberation and freedom, and no more bondage. The biblical imagery of beating swords into plowshares is a powerful one, and it's one that activists like Shane Claiborne and Denver's own Mike Martin have taken quite literally. What used to harm or take away life 
This here used to be a barrel gun, looked like this. Now being repurposed to help plant new life. We're hearing from someone who's been affected by gun violence and then inviting the community that's present here today to take a turn with the hammer and helping us turn a gun into a garden tool. It starts as a typical gun buyback event. People who turn their guns in receive compensation, but Mike and his Raw Tools team have a plan for what these guns can do. Our mission is to disarm hearts, forge peace, and cultivate justice. And we do that by turning guns into garden tools, introducing people to resources that are alternative means of conflict resolution, like de-escalation and mediation. This effort began after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012. Since then, more than 1,000 guns have been through the process. But there's been a new push in the last two years, coinciding with a spike in gun violence, a significant increase during the pandemic, leading to more than 20,000 gun deaths in 2021. So these buyback programs are a great idea for public messaging and for changing the culture. We start to associate guns with negative messages, so we celebrate the destruction of guns. That's probably a good thing for our culture. We have 400 million guns in circulation, and any contribution to reducing that is helpful. The idea of the transformation comes from a Bible verse about turning a sword into a plow. This, a modern interpretation that also serves the psychological effects of those impacted by gun violence. I lost my cousin to uh, gang violence when I was a senior in high school here in Denver. He was um, murdered at a gas station during a gang conflict. It was really, really powerful to think about the literal reshaping of a thing of violence into something that's going to help cultivate and grow and so just an, an actionable thing that you can do to try to help stop the gun violence. I took my frustrations out on the gun. It felt better. I loved it. Charlotta Evans. The video goes on to include an interview with Charlotta Evans, who we heard from just two weeks ago, who herself is no stranger to gun violence. She had her three-year-old son gunned down uh, by a man named Raymond Johnson in their story of reconciliation. And these calls to pardon and provision in Isaiah, God is not simply offering a suggestion to be considered. <laughs> these are imperatives to be obeyed. Loose, undo, let the oppressed go free, share, bring, cover, don't hide. <laughs> These are imperatives to be obeyed, not suggestions to be considered. Contributions of bread for the hungry and shelter for the homeless and clothing for the naked are not to be impersonal donations to systems and agencies, but what our very own Juan Pena calls immediate and direct personal involvement. It's important for all of us to take inventory in our life and say, God, what are the ways that I have um, sanitized and distanced myself from the needs of the poor? How can I be immediately and directly and personally involved in the lives of those around me? Your bread, your house, your clothing. Providence, if we will give up, abstain from, fast from, from time to time, for limited periods, our own bread, our own home, our own clothing, then we will be freed up to share our own bread, our own homes, and our own clothing with the needy. In the words of Isaiah, true fasting will lead to true justice.
The call is clear, and if you're part of Providence, you likely are here because you believe justice is an integral part of our faith. It's not just an extracurricular activity that the really spiritual do every now and then. The question for us is how do we grow as carriers of justice on a daily basis? I think events like Pitch Night are a perfect and prime example of ways to be involved, but maybe in your own life, what does it look like? Well, if you grew up like me, maybe you grew up in a conservative religious environment and you thought that anything that even smelled like social welfare or the leftist agenda, aka what I'm saying, uh, was (laughs) not of God and not of the Bible. Unfortunately, not to belabor the point, but the Bible nerd in me has to say the data in Scripture contradicts that view on almost every turn. God identifies personally with the poor in vulnerable. Just briefly consider Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Or Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. But if you don't believe me or the Bible, believe Tim Keller, the Pope of Evangelical Christianity. Keller says, some people need more than equal treatment. They need special concern, a deep social conscience, and a life poured out in deeds of service to others, especially the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith and real connection with God. True fasting results in true justice. And better than Proverbs or Keller combined are the words of our Savior in Matthew 25. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Did you notice that? Jesus references the same four themes found in Isaiah 58. Food, shelter, clothing, and relief from imprisonment. Provision of these things to the hungry, the stranger, the naked, and the prisoner are the primary identifiers of the righteous. Said more directly, social justice is directly connected to personal righteousness. But as we all know deep down, We don't not care for the poor for theological reasons. Theology is just a scapegoat. We don't care for the least of these for emotional reasons. And I resonate with these. I believe most of us, myself included, are genuinely afraid that if we were to give up what we possess, we'll risk the loss of personal protection. But God says in Isaiah 58, if you do this, I will do that. Your light will break forth like the dawn. 
Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. You want protection? The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you care for others, not only will I protect you as a rear guard, I will answer you in your own day of distress. And when I do, I won't just give you my presence in some vague sense or answer your prayer request like you were posturing earlier. No, no, no. I won't just give you my presence. I'll give you myself. Here I am. It's me. More than the time we spend together on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, our desire as a church community is to see each and every one of us more formed into the vision that Christ has set that we would get this passion for justice down from our heads into our hearts and into our bones. As some of you know, and Osvaldo made very clear, I recently graduated from Denver Seminary. Uh, the, oh, God, wow, okay, thanks. Uh, the impulse after finishing any significant milestone in life is often to rush ahead, right? You get the degree, you want to go prove yourself in the workforce and show, hey, I've got what it takes to do a good job, at least with my personality, I'm that way. But passages like Isaiah 58 have given me reason for pause. They've challenged me, confronted me, and convicted me. Uh, Twelve years after my first fast, this Pentecostal preacher isn't throwing fasting out with the bathwater, but this time around, I'm approaching the practice differently. For the entirety of June, I'm going on a consecrated fast. I'm not sure how long I'll literally fast, hopefully about a week or so, abstaining from food, maybe longer. But my time will be centered around what some have come to call the new Nazarite vow. So the old Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6, and there are basically three commandments that are given so that anyone in all of Israel can take this vow. Uh, Don't partake of the fruit of the vine, don't cut your hair, and don't come in contact with the dead. Uh, Many scholars think that the Apostle Paul actually took this vow in the New Covenant in Acts 18. So it's a totally warranted and good thing to do. But reappropriated for modern times, the New Nazarite vow consists of no alcohol or dessert because back in the day, uh, grapes and fruit of the vine were used in cakes and pies and different desserts. And so that's an equivalent for us today, not just fermented drink. Uh, No haircuts, uh, that's included, but so is no shopping because your hair was an external marker and so is clothing and our our fashion. It's an identifier of our values and our beliefs today in our society. And not cutting your hair and abstaining from shopping for clothing is a way to identify yourself set apart wholly for a special purpose as opposed to those around you. And then the last one is no digital media because Frankly, what brings death like Netflix at 10 o'clock at night? (laughs) So I'm using the 30 days of June to not drink or shop or stay up to date on the latest news cycle. I'll fast and actually take time um, off from work and seek spiritual direction and journal and read and reflect. And even as I'm saying all this, I'm realizing that this is a very privileged position I have to even be able to do something like this. But in order to truly have fasting lead to true justice, I am going to walk up and down Colfax. I'm going to ride the RTD. 
going to serve meals at the Denver Rescue Mission, shadow Hudson Jans, his work among the homeless in our city. I'll pray and fast and worship and ask God to irreparably break my heart for the poor in this city. I say this not to virtue signal myself, but to ask that my life would serve as a prophetic witness to our congregation of what true holiness, what true set-apartness can look like. My hope is that I would live not just the next 30 days, but really the rest of my life, and as long as the Lord calls Kara and I to providence, as a visible symbol of a better alternative story to the uh, licentious indulgence and drunkenness and hedonism of our city. The Last Supper, painted by Leonardo da Vinci, is perhaps one of the most famous paintings of all time. Art historians far smarter than I could tell you uh, all the details and the history and how it's evolved over the years and what each figure means and the lighting and the design and the scale. But what's clear is that this scene depicts the moment where Jesus informs his disciples, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. You can see all the disciples kind of turning to one another. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And you see third over from the left, Judas Iscariot clutching the money bag and reaching for one more piece of bread, Jesus's body. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus broke his bread with his closest followers, and one of them betrayed him for personal gain. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus was not freed from, but bound in chains, unjustly arrested, tried, executed as a criminal. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he didn't give clothes. He died naked on the cross, stripped by soldiers of the one possession he owned, his robe. Jesus didn't invite others into his home. He died without a home, buried in the borrowed tomb of a stranger. Don't you see? God became a victim of injustice for us so that we might become vessels of righteousness for others. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Rich for ourselves, hoarding up wealth and possessions, or rich in faith for the poor and the oppressed and the hurting. This is what true fasting looks like. My friends, if you're facing any resistance in your heart towards what I'm saying this morning, maybe, like me, you genuinely want to live this alternative vision of care for the poor, but feel a level of fear in doing so. I want to invite you to let the beauty of what Christ has done compel you to turn this duty into a delight. I invite you to pray for me as I begin this journey during the month of June. I'm not disappearing. I'll still be here on Sundays. I'm going to the Providence Retreat. Very much looking forward to that. But I also prophetically challenge you to ask yourself this summer, in whatever ways you're able, what do you need to give up in order to give yourself more fully to God and others? What is it in your life that maybe needs to be set to the side so that you can give yourself more fully to God and others? This type of fasting isn't legalism. It's not a guilt trip. It's an invitation to embody a better story than the one our city has on tap. Maybe for you it means abstaining from lunch once a week in order to pray to God. 
maybe for health or personal concerns, giving up food just isn't possible at this time. And you need to take a concentrated break from social media, video games, streaming services. Maybe the, and I really, I really feel strongly on this one, maybe the idol of alcohol has a grip around your throat. And you need, in community, to take an elongated break from the bottle. We're going to leave that slide up on the screens behind me for the next few minutes. I'm going to invite Kevin to play quietly in the background. But I truly want you to ask the Holy Spirit, God, what would you have me give up so that I can get closer to you for the sake of others? True fasting leads to true justice. Let's take a couple moments to quietly reflect as he plays.